Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to this special Football Digest, looking ahead to the start of Women's Euro 2022 on Wednesday. I'm Ned Keating and joining me this morning is Connor Bromley as we look ahead to another summer tournament, which for the most part is being played in England, much like last year, Connor, we had the men's Euros at Wembley playing a key part in that, obviously hosting a lot of England's matches, uh, as well as the final and the semi-finals as well. But this year we've got the women's uh, tournament to look forward to and we've got the whole tournament here as well. It should be brilliant. We've got matches up and down the country, matches in Manchester, matches in Brighton, London, Southampton, all across the country. Uh, so hopefully there's a real feel feel good factor across the country over the next few weeks. Um, and I suppose as well for us football fans, kind of, it's just nice to have a summer tournament to look forward to when we haven't got the Men's World Cup until November. At least we've got something to tie us over now uh, until the Premier League comes back in, in August. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's good for the country just to have yeah, you know, obviously everyone knows all the COVID and everything else that everyone's went through the last few years. So to have um, a summer tournament where it's all here and there seems to be quite a feel-good factor around women's football at the minute. It seems to have kind of went on leaps and bounds in the last 10 years or so and, and grown to the point now where they're looking at, you know, the, the largest attendance. UEFA has already confirmed it's going to be the largest attended uh, tournament that they've had. So I think it's, it's all good, all positive. Hopefully England can make sure it's a tournament to remember. It would be a shame if they were to have an underwhelming performance and a lot of this feel good that that's there and is ready to be, you know, turned into positives that can benefit the women's game forever. Um, hopefully this tournament's going to be the catalyst for that. And if they were to get to the final or win the tournament, I think, you know, that's going to have a, a huge effect very much in the way that, you know, people talk about Italia 90 with the men's game, you know, change things and Euro 96, again, change things and kind of, made football more popular. I think there is a, a big difference between football in the 80s to football in the 90s and 2000s. And them two tournaments were, were kind of vital in that. So hopefully this tournament can have the same effect on the women's game. As I, as I mentioned there at the top, obviously last summer we had the, the men's Euros uh, with matches taking place at Wembley, but there was a great feel-good atmosphere around the whole country, even when we just had one host stadium, um, because obviously so much of the big action was taking place there. Obviously all of England's games, uh, apart from the, the quarterfinal against Ukraine, as well as the semi-finals and the final as well. But now that we've got this whole tournament in this one country, hopefully we can see these the great scenes that we saw last summer replicated uh, again. And, and as you said, they give a real boost to the women's game around the country too. Yeah, and I think it's it's important that, you know, it it gets the respect that it deserves. I think, you know, there's a lot of people who are casual football watchers, you know, not necessarily diehards like me and you, but casual football watchers do check into the big tournaments, you know, and they will watch the World Cups and the European Championships. And hopefully those casual viewers will get the same fever and same spirit that we've had for the 2018 and, and 2020 uh, men's tournaments because when the country has that feeling and, and everyone gets behind it. There's nothing really quite like it. And I know what I'm like, you know, I've got three lions playing all the time and on the ball by and deck, obviously being a Northern lad, that's the one I go to. That's my uh, go-to song, but it gives you such a positive feeling. And I hope that this tournament really encapsulates that feeling and gets, you know, a bigger audience watching the women's game. Because I mean, I think it's the largest growing sport or largest grow uh, largest watched league i think last year the women's super league um in britain so it is a growing game 
this is the first time that England will be hosting the Women's Euros since 2005. Um, I'm just casting my mind back to that then, and, and I think I was about giving my age away there. I'm about, I was about 12 years old at the time. Um, but from what I seem to remember, it kind of really seemed to change the game for women's football in in England as a, as a whole. It kind of really, it was the first time that a kind of massive spotlight had been shone on it almost. Like, you know, kind of growing up back then, it had always been about the Premier League and men's football and men's World Cups and everything. But here was this opportunity back in 2005 to shine that light on women's football. It was taken and it's just gone on to such great levels since then. But now it's coming back. There's a chance now for the women's game to go to that next level again with England. Um, you know, since then, 2009 runners-up at the Euros, 2017 runners-up at the Euros, World Cup semi-finalists in 2015 and 2019. Much like the men's team, though, it's just that that next step. Can they go and win that tournament? You know, brilliant success and probably unrivaled success for the men's team, but everyone's holding it against Gareth Southgate. There isn't that tournament win. And I think the women would love to beat the men and, and get that tournament win, hopefully, this summer. Yeah, and I think, you know, you talk about Euro 2005, it was an average attendance of 8,000 for that tournament. And now they're talking about, you know, 500,000 tickets sold. So there's no way the average attendance is going to be that low this time. And and I think a lot of that comes from that base point of Euro 2005. That was the first time that people had a peak, you know, a real mainstream look at women's football. And now, you know, 15, well, what, 17 years later, you can see that the game has grown so much since then, I think, you know, that, that scene with the Women's Super League that's doing so well on Sky Sports and I think it's 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 only a positive. And, you know, I just hope that this tournament captures the imagination uh, of the nation because that's what will propel women's football into being, you know, equal to the men's game. And I think ultimately that's what everybody wants. Everybody wants to have the, the men and the women on a level playing field. You mentioned there about uh, attendances for for the uh, tournament in 2005 being an average of 8,000. This year's one is going to be the best attended women's Euros of all time, which is, you know, phenomenal success. And it obviously shows that how far the women's game has come in this country in in those 17 years since. Um, But there has been question marks raised, especially by some of the players um, about the stadiums that are being used. I, I think the main sticking point is definitely that Manchester City's Academy Stadium, which is home to is home to their women's team, but it's also home to the men's uh, reserve teams and academy teams as well, is being used as one of the stadiums. I think that's got uh, a, a capacity itself of only about 8,000, but it is hosting, uh, I believe, three games in this tournament. And there has been some consternation with other venues as well. Um, do you understand the players' concerns? Because obviously they come to these tournaments, they want to play at the best stadiums, but at the same time... You know, would they rather be playing in in big? I know, I know for Old Trafford at least, like they've sold that one out uh, for the for the opening match, England versus Austria on on Wednesday night. But would these players enjoy more playing in those smaller, tighter, intimate venues when it when it does come to that world uh, to to these big major tournaments rather than you know we've seen men's World Cups in previous editions that have had thousands of empty seats and, and the atmosphere almost gets lost a little bit. Uh, I would agree that it, it's disrespectful. I think. Ultimately, of all the stadiums to choose, why you would choose an academy stadium is is, is mind blowing. Really, there's so many stadiums around. Because I don't think it, it's disrespectful if you when they're playing games at Rotherham, for example. You know, that's a, a tight knit. I think it's twelve thousand seats. You know, it's it's not a huge stadium, but that that to me that's a proper football stadium. Whereas an academy that, that isn't, it doesn't have the same vibe. And you know, you look at how many stadiums we've got in this country, how many amazing venues that we have 
and the fact that you know there isn't a game in the Midlands and there isn't a game in the Northeast, why they're settled on playing at an academy stadium in Manchester when Old Trafford's also being used, it, it does seem a bit, a bit crazy. You know, you, you think the Northeast. I mean, obviously, I'm biased. I'm from the Northeast, but you know, Sunderland has a history with the England ladies team. You know, I mean, we've got Lucy Bronze, Jill Scott, Beth Mead. Obviously, Steph Houghton wasn't isn't included in the squad, but she's been a mainstay of that team and probably is the the player everyone looks at as being a representation of that team for the last decade. Uh, Lucy Stainforth as well. You know, they all came through Sunderland Academy, and there's a rich history of that in the Northeast. And the fact that they've chosen uh, a five thousand stadium at Manchester City's Academy, it, it doesn't really sit right with me. So I, I understand the frustrations of the player, but of the players, but I think it's frustrating for the fans because there's a lot of fans. You know, like myself, you know, and I've watched Sunderland Ladies, and we used to cover Sunderland Ladies when I worked at Sunderland Football Club. Um, it's not realistic for me, you know, with work. I mean, you've got us working so hard, Ned. It's, it's not realistic <laughs> to be able to take time off during the week to go watch games and to go to Manchester for me, which I think is the closest game, it's like three, four hours. You know, that, that's a long way. So I think they've missed out on a section of the country, which I think could have very easily been resolved by just moving the the stadium at Manchester City further up north it, it doesn't make sense to me and I think the players have every right to feel disrespected for it and I think it's the one little thing about this tournament that that's that's great on me is the fact that they're playing the games there or some of the games Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, that they probably, you know, in terms of growing the game, they probably could have done with sharing it out a bit more as well. Because you kind of think about it, and you, you kind of go back to the men's tournament in Euro '96, and they had countries, yeah, uh, games across countries. He said there, and you even go back to Euro 2005. It was just Lancashire and Cheshire, I think, that were hosting it. And even this year, it's like we've got a cluster on the south coast, a couple of stadiums in in London and and Milton Keynes, and then Manchester Central. Yorkshire Central and then nothing in, in those big gaps in between, like you said, they're in the Midlands and, and in the North East. And, and I'm sure uh, had there been games there, I'm sure they probably would have uh, been been quite popular as well among the local fans. Well, um, Newcastle had the largest attended game last season. I'm sure they did when they played. Um, I think it was Anik Town that played. I mean, that shows the level they were playing. Anik Town, who, you know, <laughs> like the small little village in Northumberland, but I think there was 20,000 plus at that game. So there would have been a a desire to watch that if they put it at the Riverside or the Stadium of Light or St James's Park it would have certainly sold 20-30,000 tickets Turning our uh, attentions to the hosts uh, England will be looking to as we said before try and uh, try and lift the trophy this summer um, manager that they've got in charge is Serena Weigman who has history with taking the hosts all the way in the Euros uh, four, five years ago sorry you're so used to tournaments being every four years and now with yeah. COVID shifting the schedule <laughs> it throws you off but yes five years ago uh, Serena Weigman was the Dutch manager as they lifted uh, the trophy on home soil of course beating England along the way Will she be able to repeat the trick with England though this year? Oh, I think my hot take on this one uh, is that she's got two tournaments within a year because World Cups next summer. She has to win one of them, really. That's what she's been appointed to do. Um, pressure's on. I would say as well, England's got some players that you know are probably heading towards the end of their careers. Players who are in their, their mid to late thirties. Uh, this is a, this is a crucial time, you know, and I think she's been brought in to win. Um, very much we're talking about the men's team with Gareth Southgate you know and he's under pressure if, if England don't do well at the next World Cup um, it's the same thing with the ladies team you know they've got to 
to win things, you know, and that's how you're measured. It doesn't matter if you finish second. It doesn't matter if you get the semi-final. You've got to, to follow through and, and pick up the the major honours. So I think, you know, she was appointed to win. She's won before. She's got to do it this summer um, or next summer. But this summer, really, when you're the host nation and you've, you've got such a strong squad, you'd like to think that they've got a, a very good chance of winning and hopefully with the people who are attending the games. I think uh, I read, you know, somewhere between 70% of the tickets are, are sold in England for this tournament. But there's a lot of people who are excited for this tournament. It would be such a shame if they were to, to come short and, you know, heaven forbid, you know, didn't make it through the groups or, or maybe got knocked out the first knockout stage. You know, they've really got to make a long push and it, you'd, you'd want to see them get to the final really and recapture the spirit we had last year when, when England got the Euros final at Wembley. Um, so that, that's my hope and expectation. I think when you bring in a manager who's won at international level, the idea is is to win uh, in the new job. Uh, in terms of England's group opponents, uh, they come up against Austria on Wednesday. They play Norway on Monday, and then they play Northern Ireland on Friday week. Uh, so a nice little test. You know, there's been so much said about how the men's team will be playing Wales, and and it will be a home nations derby come the the men's World Cup in November. But um, and a nice little tasty fixture for England to round out the group uh, stage with. And every game as well, there's going to be pressure on. Um, you know, obviously opening up against Austria, there's going to be the pressure on on opening night and. Probably to be fair, that matters in that one is is a is a win really. It doesn't matter too much about performance uh, against Norway. Obviously, Arda Hergerberg's back in the squad. Uh, very talented player, former Ballon d'Or uh, women's Ballon d'Or winner. Uh, and as I said there, the pressure then of I, I know England played Northern Ireland back uh, earlier this year and, and and beat them quite comfortably. But there's always that pressure when it comes to a major tournament of playing such a fierce rival um, and and a, and a home nations rival as well. So every single group game England have there's there's going to be some sort of pressure and, and some sort of uh, emotion involved in the game for them yeah it's it's immense pressure at tournaments uh, especially when you're the host nation you know you, you've you, you feel like you've got to win and you know in the in domestic football you know you get 30 38 40 games whatever it is there's a lot of games where if you don't play well and and, and don't pick up the result you can bounce back you know the next week by the end of the season people forget what happened in game one two three four if you've managed to fulfill your objective but I mean your tournament football, you know, if your first game doesn't go quite right, maybe you miss a penalty early on or you concede a silly goal, um, that can knock you for the rest of the tournament. You know, you, you've got to get off to a good start and you want to be the team that's in the ascendancy. You know, you don't want to be chasing games. You don't want to be chasing group leaders. You don't want to go into the, the game against Northern Ireland, you know, the last game, which is going to have that added, added sort of pressure of it being... A, a kind of a Derby fixture, that sort of feel to it. You want to be through. You want to win your first two games, and, and mean that that third game you can maybe rest players or or put in some you know players who maybe deserve minutes who haven't got any. Um, I think the important thing for England is is you know I think the group draw has been quite favourable. I think most people would expect them to come through, but you've got to do it. You know you, we've seen in the past with England's men's team. You know and. <laughs> the amount of times they've had groups where you've been like, oh, they should go through, and then you know the draw with Algeria, and you're like, oh, well, what, what's happened here? Or the draw with the USA, and you're like, oh, you know, it can happen. And the pressure, you know, a lot of these players probably haven't experienced playing at a full Old Trafford, haven't had that experience before, so that's going to be another added dimension where who deals with the crowd, you know, the best could be who wins the game. So there's plenty to look forward to, and I think from a, you know, 
just a football in perspective, not even being an England fan, just for football in perspective, I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see how England deal with the pressure of being the host nation and having such large crowds behind them. As, it, as, as we've touched on as well, um, there'll probably be casual football fans that will be uh, taking their first glance or their first intense glance at, at women's football over the next few weeks. So, Connor, I'm going to leave the floor to you here and you're going to talk this through the players that, that we should be keeping an eye out on. Obviously, England players um, are going to have a lot of the spotlight on them, but who are the other players who could light up this tournament? Yeah, I mean, Lauren Hemp was the player I, I sort of picked up to, to watch for England, being at Man City this season, the winger, and, and it has impressed me when I've called the Women's Super League on Sky Sports. Um, but, you know, you look at Spain, Alexia Patelas, uh, plays for Barcelona, Ballon d'Or winner, uh, domestic treble last season there, goal scorer, top scorer in the Champions League last season. So that's a player that I think, you know, you have to watch out. I think that do play Spain, you know, she's going to be the the danger woman. Uh, Peniel Hardo plays for Denmark and Chelsea, most expensive women's footballer when Chelsea paid, you know, a quarter of a million for her back in um, 2016, I think it was, 2017. Um, she's won a domestic league title every season since 2016. So, you know, you, you know, as a defensive midfielder goes, she, she's going to be a, a difficult player if England were to, to go against Denmark. Um, another player from the Women's Super League, Vivian Midiema from the Netherlands, scored twice in the 2017 final, all-time top scorer for Holland. So obviously a player that, you know, You've got to, to keep an eye on it and no doubt will be a fox in the box um, for for Holland. Um, Marie-Antoine Cotodo plays for PSG, 23 years old, 20 goals every season for the last five years. So another goal scorer, obviously picking up the goal scorers uh, like a striker. <laughs> and the last one, look at Leah Schuller from Germany, 16 goals last season for Bayern Munich, 25 goals and 38 games for Germany. So um, yeah, they're, they're the ones that, that have caught my eye and I'll probably... The ones if you were doing fantasy football, you'd want to put at the top of your wish list. Um, and of course, kind of, there's only one place to end on a on a preview show. Uh, is football coming home? I hope so. I'll give it a <laughs> no. I, do you know what? I, I don't want to say like a sixty percent chance because I've been burned before. I thought it was coming home last summer. Um, I thought it was coming home in 2018 as well. So third time's a charm, maybe. Um, but it'll not be easy. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if football's coming home. Hopefully the final. I would I would take the final. The final would be fine because after that you're in the lottery. I just hope they get the final because that means they've played all the way through the tournament and everyone can get the fever by then. So I'm hoping they'll at least get there. Uh, and if they did get to the final, there's no penalty shootout so that yeah. we don't have to go through any any potential heartbreak again. Uh, Connor, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Of course, you can keep up to date with all the latest news from the Women's Euros uh, across the REACH National Network, including the Daily Mirror, Daily Star and Daily Express. But for now, it's goodbye.